Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Monday, August the 7th, 2023. It is currently 1019 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. So, are you guilty of the sin of partiality? Are you guilty of showing partiality to someone? That you're partial to this person or you're partial to this one. You're showing partiality in some way, shape, or form. Are you guilty of that sin? Now, it's maybe not even a sin you've never thought about. I've never really given a thought to sin of partiality. I've never, I've never given that much thought. Partiality. I mean, I know that there's obviously scripture that talks about it, but of all the sins I struggle with, I don't know. I think, am I showing partiality in this situation? Am I showing partiality in that situation? Uh, am I, what am I doing here? So it is an interesting sin to discuss, and we have found ourselves, well, in a discussion about this sin. I We've found ourselves in a discussion about the sin of partiality in James chapter 2, and that in James chapter 2, supposedly there are three reasons given in the text why the, why the sin of partiality is a sin, why partiality partiality is wrong. And so I hope, I hope that you have listened to part one and you've worked on it. I did get at least, I think one, maybe I've got, I think I got a couple of emails of people saying, here are the three reasons, here are the three reasons that uh, James 2 says the sin of partiality is wrong. And so I may, I'm going to probably look at least one of those. I think I have saved in my notes. Um, We'll look at least one of those and we will try to advance this discussion and hopefully it will be very beneficial. Now you'll notice that I'm starting with the sin of partiality. I'm starting with this sin of showing, of being partial, showing partiality to someone. I'm starting with that sin. You would think I would introduce this in a different way, but the reason I'm starting with James 2, a specific sin, and there are three reasons in this chapter that say this sin is wrong, is because I'm very concerned, and I am always concerned when we do this, whenever we review a sermon, and we start finding some things in the sermon that may be wrong or that we disagree with or we think are hermeneutically incorrect, that we can find ourselves going, look at us. We found these problems in the sermon. Look at that. That sermon was messed up. And we don't take anything from it of spiritual benefit. We cannot become people who just are good at pointing out errors and and finding theological flaws and not seeing our own sin and our own problems. So in this particular case, because we are reviewing a sermon, and yes, there's been some problems, and yes, the sermon we were reviewing went viral, and there's been controversy surrounding it, I still want to focus on the sin of partiality, showing being partial, the sin of partiality. I want to show, I want to talk about that and discuss that because that's something we can all look at ourselves and going, am I guilty of this sin? And I, am I guilty of this sin? Because if I am, that's something that we can think about, struggle with, obviously run to Christ for forgiveness, but then move to try to move away from that sin. So hopefully for those who listen to part one, you, you really got that. And if you, if you didn't, well, I need you to really think about that as we move forward here in part two. Now this all started because my, see, how did this begin? 
Um, oh, I, okay. There was, I don't know. Okay. My daughter sent me one, but that was not to this sermon. That was to a different sermon. I don't know where I first saw it, but I started seeing this video clip of a sin, a sin, a sermon by J.D. Greer talking about the sin of partiality. Okay. So I digress. I started seeing these video clips of a sermon of J.D. Greer where he rebuked his church. He was upset with them because they show up late and they leave early. And everyone had an opinion. How dare, Some were like, how, di- how dare J.D. Greer treat his people this way? This is not a fa- that's not treating people like they're in a family. This is wrong. Others were like, J.D. Greer, you hypocrite. You create a situation where people don't take the sermon seriously or treat it with any reverence because you have destroyed preaching. It's your fault. And others are like, what what are you talking? And then everyone had their opinion. And so everyone started fighting and arguing and you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And it went viral. And then I I saw it in a number of articles and I'm like, okay. So I turned on the microphone to tell everyone, hey, here's the clip. Here's what J.D. Greer said. Let's take the clip and talk about a bigger issue about how people act in church. We talked about that. And then I said, but to be fair, no, no one, no preacher, no one should be judged by a little sound clip, a little clip taken out of context. You should always judge something based on hearing every word that was said. So I said, at some point, I would review the sermon. Well, I think that happened on Friday. It's now Monday night, fast, it's fast approaching 1030 PM central time. And I realized today when it was finally time to do it, why did I even say I was going to do this? Because now everyone else has moved on. No one else now cares about J.D. Greer. No one else even cares about the sermon. They've all moved on. But to be fair, they may have moved on. But since everyone cast these judgments and and made all of their dogmatic declarations about J.D. Greer, I still believe their only right thing to do is to listen to the sermon in its full context. So we started reviewing the sermon. The first thing that was kind of off is he made some comments in James chapter two. We read these words. My brethren, have not the faith of uh, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect of persons. I'm going to read it again from the King James, James two, verse one. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect of persons. In other words, as a Christian who has faith in Jesus Christ, you don't then turn around and show respect of person, showing people with partiality, showing, show, being partial to this person or this person, drawing this distinction, treating people on the basis of how they look or money or education or race or where they come from. Don't do that. Do not show partiality to people like that. Treat people with respect and, and dignity and, 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 and treat them equal to some level that so um, he took that and he took that phrase that's translated in the king or he took the greek word and the king james it's respect it's uh, translated respect of persons and he made some claims about the greek word that it's used nowhere else in the bible well we clearly proved that wasn't true it's, it appears in four other places so we know that's not true um, he said that the respect of persons, that the Greek word there means something about the face. Well, we didn't see that in the Blue Letter Bible app, but someone, to be accurate and to be fair, did send me, did send me, if I can find it, if I can find it, they did send me a screenshot from, um, I, I guess it's the Strong's Concordance, 
and uh, it has uh, the Greek word, and then it's an acceptor of a face, individual, special, one exhibiting partiality, respecter of persons. So the sin of partiality, it's, it's, but it, it does an acceptor of a face. So that's where the face possibly comes from. Now, the way I think he said what it literally means, I still don't know where he gets that. He says it's used nowhere else in Greek literature. Uh, and so James made up the term according to him. And so that not showing partiality is just a Christian concept. In other words, he claims that it doesn't come from anywhere else. I have a hard time with a lot of those claims. He gave no source. He gave no uh, where he got this information. And we do know he was wrong because the Greek word is used in Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, and James. So it's not the only place it's found in the Bible. So that whole thing was a little frustrating. But then I said, let's set that aside and then let's listen to what he has to say about partiality. Now, he made some great comments about how we look at people and we judge people and and we show partiality based off this and based off that. There were some very convicting parts. And my fear, again, is that people will walk away. J.D. Greer got said that Greek word is only used one time in the Bible, but it's actually used in these other places. J.D. Greer was wrong. Or when we get to wherever he gives the harsh rebuke to the church, how dare he speak to the people? But how about we consider ourselves in the sin of partiality. That's what we need to consider. All right. That's why I'm emphasizing that. That's why I'm starting my intro with this. That's why I've spent nine minutes trying to emphasize that. All right. I really, because I I just, I know it's so easy that one's Christian life just becomes being the most right theologically, but being the most right theologically is only so good if it's not also matched with, I don't know, some passion and love for God and a desire to try to do the right thing. I mean, we have to, I know we're always going to sin, but there should be like, we should just be as concerned with our own life as we are with our theology and being right theologically. There's got to be a balance there. There's got to be a balance. So I really want to stress that because I just know this sermon was torn apart and everyone had an opinion and everyone was attacking J.D. Greer but nobody wanted to look to themselves. And what was frustrating is, well, there has been some good things said in the sermon about the sin of partiality. So let's look. Let's go back to the sermon. He's about to set up that there are three reasons. There are three reasons given in James 2 why the sin of partiality is wrong. Now, the first one he gives is a little, I think, confusing. We're going to back it up and hear that part. And then I've got my notes here, what someone sent to me about partiality, and uh, we'll look at it, all right? I hope that all made sense in 11 minutes, and I do apologize with, I'm having a little, just a few problems with my voice this evening, just a few, but I think we're good to go. I think my voice is going to hold up, because this is going to be a long, bumpy ride, so we'll just start the long, bumpy ride with my voice at the beginning, and I think I was having problems saying the word partiality. I think I was. Partially? Partiality. Hopefully I was saying it right. I'm going to have to go back and listen. If I was saying it right, let me know, and if I wasn't, tell me in the chat on Spreaker, no, you did not say it right, but you finally corrected yourself, okay? If I did, hopefully, hopefully. That'd be horrible that my entire introduction was me. All you will remember is he didn't say the word partiality right. He said partially and not partiality. All right, so if I did that. I apologize. All right. Are you ready? Here we go. J.D. Greer. 
the sermon that was viral, that everyone was upset about. Everyone's already moved on. But we want to be fair and let J.D. Greer be heard in his full context. We've reviewed a, 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 a good section of, the, not a good section. We, we, we reviewed a small section of the sermon in part one. Now, for this late night broadcast, we go all in and we're going to try to review all of it so that we can be done. Here we go. Listen, he says, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? First of all, sorry that that came in so suddenly. I thought I thought we had it uh, queued up correctly, but that's okay. Someone said you said it correctly. Whoo, that's good. That's good. You don't know what it's like when you're when you're broadcasting. See, when you're recording. See, when you're recording. This is what you would do right there. You would just stop and be like, wait a minute. Am I saying that correct? And you would go back. You would listen. And go, okay, I got it right. Okay. Then you would just delete it and start over, right? But when you're live and you think you get it wrong, then all you start doing is like, wait a minute. Did I mess that up? Did I mess that up? Did I mess that? And then you get in your head and then you're, you're like, you, you're getting, you're distracting yourself. You're trying to say you're speaking, but your mind's over here going, you didn't say partiality right. You didn't say it right. You, you didn't say it right. You didn't say it right. And you're like, shh, be quiet. I'm talking. No, shh. And then you get into a back and forth with yourself and then the whole thing goes off the rails. But all right, good. All right. Here we go. Now, sorry that we, that was, I thought it was queued up right, right where it was supposed to go, but it, it'll, it'll ease in. So, all right, you ready? Here we go. Which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Here is reason number one. James says external riches rarely reflect internal excellencies. Okay, here's reason number one why the sin of partiality is wrong, all right? So I'm going to try to back this up just briefly. I'm going to try to back this up just briefly, all right? I don't know if we can get that here. Let's see if we can. Excellencies. No, that did not back up the way I wanted it to. Let's see if we can back it up a little bit more. Okay, let's see if we can ease back into it. Here we go. Eternal riches rarely reflect internal excellencies. If anything, James says, those who are worldly rich. <laughs> it does not want to back up to where I need it to back up. Come on, here we go. Now let's try it. Man, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Here is reason number one. James says external riches rarely reflect internal excellencies. Okay, so external riches rarely reflect internal excellencies. Now he's saying that's the number one reason the sin of partiality is wrong. Now the only problem with some of this is the way he, I understand what James is saying, the way J.D. Greer approached it was kind of like, hey, you know, don't show partiality to the rich because rich people are really bad, <laughs> okay? And I, I think the point is, hey, wait, 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 you don't want to be, you don't want to be being all mean to poor people because rich people aren't always nice 
either. Rich people oppress you. Rich people do. How about you do this? You just don't show partiality to anyone because there are poor people who are not godly, who are not good, and there's rich people who are not godly and who are not good. So don't show partiality to anyone. But the reason maybe you're showing partiality to the rich is because, well, money's involved where you're not showing partiality and you're not really worried. Maybe the issue is you're not really worried about godliness, good uh, godliness or anything. You're not even worried about character. You're worried about money. Maybe that's really the issue. Someone else who emailed me, they said this. Possibly, according to James, partiality is a sin because, number one, it makes us the judge and we have evil thoughts and are not the judge. And they said, see, James 2, 4, it says, are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Now, I I, kind of like that. James 2, 4 seems to give us a reason. Maybe we shouldn't be showing partiality. We shouldn't be partial. It's because, guess what? We, we make ourselves the judge. And can we truly judge correctly? Can we truly judge in a correct way? Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? I, I think maybe there's something to that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look up James 2, 4. I'm going to look up James 2.4. I'm going to look up James 2.4 and, and just look how it's translated in like every English translation I can find. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Hey, the fact that you're showing... Now, see, without... I see, I okay. Now I'm thinking about it. All right, let me read this all together. Let's read it all together. Okay, that, that translation just made me question maybe we, how we should approach this. All right, James 2, 1. My, bro- my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him, that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? I think partial. I think possibly James two four is not saying why partiality is a sin. I think what it's showing is the flaw in. Well, I don't know. Is it? See. Have, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I think what it's saying is, I don't know if it's, if it's describing why partiality is a sin. I think maybe it's showing that your partiality is a sin. Like you're demonstrating that you are a judge with evil thoughts because look at how you're treating the poor versus the rich. Your partiality, in other words, your partiality is a sin. It's more showing you how it's a sin. Wow. See, is it showing? Is the partiality, it's, 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 is partiality the result of their evil thoughts and their evil judgment? Or is partiality wrong because of their evil judgment? Uh, I don't know which way to go with that. His argument is, hey, the, you know, external riches rarely show internal excellencies. So the reason it's wrong is because you can't, 
You can't make an accurate judgment based off external riches. Like you can't say, hey, I'm going to treat this person better because of external riches because it rarely demonstrates the reality of what's going on internally. But the same thing is you can't judge one. You could do the same thing and then show partiality to someone who's poor, but their poverty does not correspond with their internal reality either. You can't deter, you can't judge someone's character based off their financial status either way. So that doesn't really work either. I do agree that whenever you're showing partiality to the rich, to the poor, any partiality, have you not become a judge with evil thoughts? Or that it shows that your judgments are guided by evil motives. To me, partiality, I don't know if, I don't know if it's the cause of partiality. I think partiality demonstrates that you're operating with evil motives, that you're making the partial decision because of selfish motives. Why are you treating the rich better? Because it could benefit you. Why are you treating the poor less? Because it could cost you. Okay. The rich, it may benefit you. The poor just may lead you to having to help them. So does partiality, is it wrong because we are judging or is partiality, what partiality demonstrates is that we're evil in our motives. Does partiality, is partiality wrong because we have to judge or is partiality wrong because it, or when partiality occurs, it demonstrates how evil our motives are. In other words, External partiality demonstrates internal evil motives. I think the partiality reflects the evil motive. I don't think partiality is wrong. I don't think partiality can say is a sin because of our evil motives. The partiality shows our evil motives. I think I, I think I may, I think I may turn that around. So I, I don't, I, so what, so do we have a good cause right here? I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we have, like, why is partiality a sin? Because God says it is sin. Does the text lay out exactly why it's wrong? It lays out what it shows. Your partiality demonstrates your evil motives. So many times your supposed good works, sometimes your supposedly, you know, altruistic endeavors simply demonstrate your narcissistic <laughs> mindset. You do nice things because it makes you look good. You help certain people because it benefits you. How many times do you do something good? You say something nice because ultimately it's going to come back to benefit you. So I think partiality shows evil motives. What makes partiality a sin? Because it's driven by evil motives? Could we do it that way? Partiality is a sin because it's motivated by evil motives. Is that, do you think? I, I don't know. Let, let's, let's see where he goes with this. I don't know his idea. 
his idea is, hey, partiality is wrong because external riches never show internal excellence. But I, I don't, I'm not, a, I don't like that because to me, external riches doesn't show internal excellence and poverty doesn't show internal excellence. So maybe it would be better to say partiality is wrong because it's making, now I guess you could say this, partiality is wrong because it's based off externals instead of internals. But should you make, should you be partial even by internal realities? If you could internally see, hey, this person is more godly than this person, should you make, be partial because one is more godly internally than the other? Does one's godliness justify partiality? I know I'm just raising a million questions here and I don't have any good answers. No, if, you know, anybody can throw out their thoughts here at any point and say, well, I, I, I mean, if you have different opinions here, I would love to hear them. I would love to hear them. But, um, yeah. Partiality. See, I, I think it's a good question because if you say that partiality is wrong because external riches, Never clear, clear, never in accordance with, never in agreement with, or or never truly shows internal excellence, or they're they're not in agreement. That seems to imply that if you can have partiality depending on the person's internal reality, but I think that's ridiculous. I, I don't think there should be partiality based off anything, external, internal. There should just be no partiality, period. End of story. So I don't think partiality is wrong because you can't really judge the person internally. I think it's ridiculous. Who can um Yeah, exactly. If we're if we're all equally depraved, can you judge the internal of you can't even judge it. So I guess you could say partiality is wrong. I guess maybe that's what the person the, the person who sent it that it's wrong because we can never make right judgments. I just think I just I just think James 2.4 is saying partiality is wrong because it's based off evil motives. Oh, but I don't know if it's saying, I, I don't think it's saying it's wrong because it's based off evil motives. Partiality, partiality just demonstrates evil motives. I don't think it's wrong because of evil motives. It's just wrong that the partiality demonstrates the evil motives. Or I guess maybe you could say partiality is wrong because it's motivated by evil motives. I guess you could say that. I guess you could say it that way. Partiality is wrong because it's driven by evil motives. Maybe that's the case. And I like it better that we say evil motives instead of that partiality is wrong because it's based off flawed judgment because then that seems to indicate you could be partial if you had right judgment. But I don't, are we called, even if we can make, even if we were 100% sure, I don't know if we should show partiality. Even if we could see people internally and go, ooh, there's this, because they're all depraved. Now you could say, well, this one's more, this one's depravity is showing more than this. I don't, that just all gets so subjective. I don't know. We're never going to get, we're never going to finish this sermon review if we don't move forward. So let's see what, where this goes. If anything, James says, those who are worldly rich tend to be, tend to be spiritual blessing poor. James says to the church, he says, look around, look around. 
Look around. It's not the rich who are flooded into your churches. It's the poor. The rich, the rich are the ones who are resisting you and persecuting you. It was the rich young ruler and the Pharisees who missed Jesus. It was the prostitutes and tax tax collectors who flocked to be around him. In fact, we could say the same thing today, couldn't we? Go over to the halls this morning of academia at Duke University or UNC. And there they will tell you that Jesus isn't the son of God and that the Bible is a joke. Go over to the country clubs this morning and you'll find rich people who see no real need of Jesus in their lives. That's why they're on the golf course. Meanwhile, sitting in here is a guy who drives a dump truck and a single mom working two jobs with tears in their eyes as they worship who are now joint heirs of the kingdom of God. See, I have so many problems with this. Are you telling me there's no poor people sitting at home who see no need for God? Are you telling me there's not some poor people who are not in church? Are you telling me there's no rich people in your church? You're telling me there's no rich people who give to your ministry? In fact, J.D. Greer, how much are you worth? Do we have how much J.D. Greer is worth? Do we? Can we even see? Do we know how much? His net worth appears to be, according to one source, and I'm not saying that this is 100% accurate in any way, shape, or form. Just saying it's what we have here. Um, see here. What do we have here? His net worth is $5 million. $5 million is supposedly his net worth. <laughs> okay, now put it this way. If you look up my, if you look up most people's net worth, you first, you don't find websites telling you. I don't know how much he's worth, but the fact that there's any website saying that he's worth $5 million, I don't know what his salary is. I have a hard time for going, the rich people are out there, but in here is a truck driver or a dump truck driver. In here is a single mom barely making it. And the one preaching to you has a net worth of $5 million. I don't know. Does this even prove any? I don't understand. Like, I don't know how this works. Partiality is wrong. His his basic premise is partiality is wrong because rich people are bad. So you shouldn't be partial to them. They're all bad. They're all sitting at home. All all of us good folk are in here who are poor. We're all the poor people in here, even though your preacher has a net worth of $5 million. That's Oh, come on now. That's got, that's, that's totally absurd. That's got to be uh, the, the absurdity of that. I'm having a hard time with that. All right. I'm, I'm going to just, I'm just, I'm, come on. All right. We got to keep looking. It's all the sites. Let's see how many sites go with a 5 million uh, thing. You see here. Um, see here. Let's see. This one, I think possibly gives a salary. Let's see, does this one give a salary? Um, See here, do we get a salary? I think this was of 2022. Okay, how much he earns is under investigation. Uh, how much is he worth? It's estimated uh, between $1 million and $5 million. All right. And JD's fortune stems mainly from his career as a pastor. Okay. 
Yeah, one to five million. <laughs> Even if we go with a low number, one million. I'm sorry. If you're worth one million dollars, ladies and gentlemen, you're rich. Okay, at least at least according to my definition, right? You're rich. I I would just like to have like ninety thousand dollars so that I could just pay off my mortgage and be done with it, and then I would be set for the rest of my life financially. If I could just come up with ninety thousand dollars, I literally would be set for the rest of my life. Literally, I wouldn't need anything. I would be good. I'd just pay off the house. Then the money that usually goes to the house, do some repairs. Everything would be good. Fix some things up. Get some new cabinets. You know, just a couple of repairs here. Or there, fix my fence, some little small paint, a couple of things in the house, and I would be like, I'd be set for life. I'd be set for life. But yeah, yeah I mean, a mil- that's rich to me, to me, to me. Someone else may go, a million dollars, that's pathetic. He's barely making it. Okay, maybe. Okay. I just think it's funny to say, hey, 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 partiality is wrong because rich people, they're hanging out at Duke and they're, they they don't believe in the Bible and they it's not rich it's the poor people that are in here but how can you say that when you're the preacher like okay I'm, you you process that how, however you want Paul says in Corinthians echoing James here first Corinthians 126 for consider your calling brothers. For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. In other words, this wasn't random or circumstantial. No, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Why did he do that? Verse 29. He did it so that no human being might boast in his presence. God more often than not chooses the poor, James and Paul say, chooses the poor to fill his church in order to humble human pride. It's not that no rich or no powerful or no super intelligent people come to Jesus. He didn't say not any, it just said not many. It's just that it's not our riches that attract God's attention. It's not our intelligence that figures him out. It's not our goodness that earns his favor. God gives knowledge of him as a gift of grace. And when it comes to receiving grace, riches and strength and righteousness, if anything, those can be liabilities to putting you in a position to receive grace. So reason number one, that partiality is wrong in the church is external riches rarely reflect internal excellencies. In verse eight, James gives you the second reason. If you really fulfill, he says, the royal law, according to scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Number two, showing no partiality is the essence of the great commandment. Okay, now now we're getting somewhere that's a little bit better. That first one is just, I'm just confused by the first one. And you think for true transparency, he should at least acknowledge, hey, guys, not all rich people are bad. Because your pastor is filthy rich, okay? Your pastor's doing really well. You're, 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 this church pays me a substantial salary. I'm doing pretty good. And if you got some single mom who's barely making it in your church, I don't know, JD, you may be able to help her out. I don't, 
You know, you possibly could be able to, I don't know. It's just the, I don't, the whole thing just is so uncomfortable there, right? Because you, because it's easy to know how much he, or not. We don't know his, uh, if you look up some of the websites, his uh, salary is currently under investigation. So I don't know, like when I say investigation, I don't think it's not criminal or anything, but I think people are trying to figure out exactly how much he pays. I guess it's, uh, it's difficult to find, but we, we have a pretty good idea of what he's worth. So I just, that whole thing is awkward. Now, the second one, I'm a little bit better. Why is partiality wrong? We still don't. I don't know if we have a good first one, right? I don't know if we have a good. I do know this. Partiality shows evil motives. You're being partial because it's going to benefit you. And, and look, every good deed, every good action you take, you do have to ask yourself. We all have to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Even the simple act of saying, I love you can be done for purely selfish reasons. You can love someone for what you get from it. And the minute you don't get what you think you should be getting for loving, you become angry and upset and mad. And all of a sudden you realize that you're loving in order to get something. You're not loving in order just to put another person first and care about them and help them and do everything for them. No, 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 no. You're in it for yourself. And there's a, there's a, there's a bit of reality to that that we cannot ignore. So many times good actions are done for selfish motives. Too, so many times we show partiality for evil motives because we're doing that which will we think will benefit us even if it's at a subconscious level that person is going to require me to help them and do this for them and do this for them and do and I'm always doing and doing and doing and doing for them and I'm tired of it and it's getting on my nerves I want someone to do something for me oh that person over there they will benefit me being friends with them they will benefit me so I don't know how to classify the first reason partiality is wrong, but I do know this. Partiality reveals evil motives. So can we say partiality is wrong because it's driven by evil motives? You can tell me what you think. You can tell me what you think. The second reason partiality is wrong is because it's a violation of the commandment that you should love your neighbor as yourself. When you show partiality, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. All right, now let's see where he goes with this. Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, which is the most important commandment? And Jesus answered, easy. First, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second, love others like you love yourself or love them like you would want to be loved. And then Jesus said, those two commandments sum up all 613 of the Old Testament laws. These are the heart of everything. James says, well, look, those came from our King, King Jesus. They're royal laws. And when you treat somebody differently because of how, how they look or how much money they have or don't have, you're breaking the second commandment. One of the only two that was given directly by Jesus. Then in verse 10, James really drives his point home by means of another gut punch. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Because the one who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
Now, this goes back to our ongoing series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. You are always in violation of the law because you never keep it ever, ever. Even as a Christian, you're in a perpetual state of law breaking. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You never do it. You're a lawbreaker. You're a transgressor of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. You never truly pull that off. You're in a perpetual state of sin against the law. Uh, Be ye holy as God is holy. You continually are in perpetual state of disobedience. I do not know why Christians will never understand. We always say, no, 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 no. Now that I'm a Christian, I can keep the law. I can do it. No, you cannot. You never can. You will always be in violation of it. Your, the hope is not that you can or not that you try or not that you do better. Your hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ who kept the law for you and by faith alone, his righteousness and his obedience is imputed to you. So in your positional standing, you're holy, you're perfect, you're a new creature, the old is gone, all is new. In practice, you are a lawbreaker, a perpetual lawbreaker, and you're going to continue to sin. Every time you sin, you should be driven to the gospel. Now, because you're saved by an imputed righteousness, out of gratitude, you should move trying to move forward and growing spiritually and do the best that we can. But we're not ever going to do so. Because even if you, and this is why it's ridiculous when people say, well, how do I know I'm saved? Well, you do this and you do this and you do this. and you do, If you do these things, you prove you're saved. Wait a minute. No, no, no. The, the fact that you do one thing wrong proves that you're a lawbreaker. So how could you ever prove that you're saved by what you do? Because no matter what you do, you're never going to fulfill the law. So according to the law, you're perpetually in, you're a lawbreaker. You're looking to find some subjective way of going, well, I don't do this or I do this better. I do that. No, judge your life according to the law. You'll never have proof that you're saved. If you want proof that you're saved, look to what Christ did for you and everything, all the law passages, which tells you to do something, whatever they demand, Christ did it for you. The hope of your salvation is not what you do. The proof of your salvation is not what you do. It's the perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ that is yours by faith alone. It's the American church is so obliterated This very important theological distinction between law and gospel that's been very much a part of church history that has been forgotten, and that's why we've been studying it over and over and over and over again. Right? Let's continue. You say, well, I don't murder or steal. Well, good for you. But one of the two commandments that Jesus gave directly, that he said was the summation of all the others and more important than all the others, you just flout at will. So you got a guy in a courtroom who's murdered multiple people right before being sentenced. He asked to address the court and he tells everybody, y'all, I just want you to know, I want to let you know I've never committed adultery. And for that reason, the court should go easy on me. What's the judge going to say? He's going to say, that's great, but who cares? We're all glad you kept that law, but arguably the essence of our law is that you respect the property and the lives of others you have utterly disregarded. James says the same thing to those showing partiality or prejudice in the church. You came, you claim to keep God's laws, but then you break the big one, his royal law. You say, I'm pro-life. I'm pro-traditional marriage. Yeah, but if you're racist or preferential, you have rejected the authority of King Jesus at precisely the point he said the law mattered most. 
if you don't love others, right? If you don't love your neighbor as yourself and you don't love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, guess what? You can be, I'm, I'm, I'm against this sin. I'm against this sin. That sin is wickedness. Well, see the wickedness of your own sin because you don't love God the way you should. You don't love your neighbor as yourself and you're not as holy as God calls you to be. You're wicked too. But we, we judge on a very subjective scale. We convince ourselves we're better than them. We convince ourselves that we can do something we literally cannot do because we never can keep God's law. And then we become self-righteous, condemning, narcissistic jerks in many cases. We should constantly see our own sin be broken and be driven to the gospel because that's where our only hope is. So what if you avoid orgies of sex if you foster orgies of anger and suspicion and racism around your dinner table? So what if you have your family in church every Sunday if you despise a lot of the people there or you look with prejudice at a lot of the people in your community? This is when you realize that a lot of those churches that claim to represent Jesus the most in our country actually don't represent him at all. They got bumper stickers on their cars that say family values, but they have no gospel values in their homes. Churches that have crosses on the top and Jesus saves on the billboard, but would probably hate the actual Jesus if he actually showed up with his emphasis on loving the refugee and the outcast. In fact, Tony Evans says, maybe the reason we haven't solved the race problem is that we haven't put it on par with murder. But King Jesus is the one who said, love like you've been loved. The same one who said, do not murder, also said, receive like you've been received. And if you are racist, you are definitely not doing that. You know, listen, looking down on somebody for any superficial reason or treating them with any less respect because of something they are or are not externally is a sin. Not just a sin, a royal sin. Y'all, that means if Michael Jordan, Joe Biden, Taylor Swift, and Nicolas Cage all walked into this church at the same time this morning as a homeless man, all of them had better received the exact same welcome. And this is where I need to confess to you as pastor because... Darn it, if I don't think Nicholas Cage showed up here, he should get top priority, okay? <laughs> I got a pastor friend who painted the doors entering their worship center, painted them red, symbolizing the blood of Jesus because he wanted it to be clear that when we come in here, we don't bring our appearance, our accomplishments, our affluence, our achievements, our ancestry, our good works, or our status, or our bad works, regardless of our status or the color of our skin or our religious past. We are all sinners in need of a Savior, made clean before God only by the blood of his Son. There's a, there's a church here in Abilene who, there, I think it's the side door to the chapel. It's red. It's red. It looks really. It's really. It looks really cool. Looks really cool, and uh, I think it's a cool idea. I mean, if you got the right building and you can pull it off, it looks really cool. Because it, I mean, just for a symbolism purpose, it, it, it demonstrates something. It's like the old saying goes: the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's a cool idea. I wish I thought of the red doors thing. It's uh, not too late, I guess. Right, but either way. What matters when you come in here is not status or money or success. What matters is that you are made in the image of God and you are purchased by the blood of Christ. Nothing else matters. That is where your dignity comes from. That is why we love you. That's why we accept you because that's why we are accepted. Now, real quick, this is a clarification. Saying that we don't show favoritism to the church is not to say that we don't give honor to whom honor is due. That's a biblical command. 
And so, yes, if the president of the United States walks into our church, we should all respect him with the unique respect that is due to the president of our country. The same would be true for the governor or the mayor. That would not be a violation of James 2. What I mean is that at the most fundamental level, we recognize the value of each person comes from being made in the image of God and purchased by his blood. And things like appearance, affluence, achievement, they have no value before God. Those things do not change your status or where you sit, metaphorically speaking, in the people of God. In verse 12, James turns the knife one more time. Verse 12, he says, so you should speak and act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. Number three, disdain for the poor demonstrates disconnect from the gospel. Remember, James says how you expect to be judged. If you're a Christian, you have put all your hope for eternal life in God's mercy. I'm not sure I understand that third one. Some of his points, I'm not so clear, like, what does he mean there? So if we disdain the poor, we're disconnected from the gospel? So speak ye and do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now we get a whole discussion what the law of liberty is, but let's just get, instead of getting into that whole discussion, let's just say it's just, let's go with the fact that it's law. Let's just say it's law. Well, then we need to constantly look at ourselves as those who are going to be that the law condemns us, right? If I, if I look at other people, but I remember that I am condemned by the law, then I, how can I show partiality to them? Because I know that I'm a sinner who deserves the same judgment that they do. So why would I look at them differently than I look at myself, right? I mean, maybe, I, I, I don't know exactly how his third point fits here, but okay, let, let's just let him at least explain it. Embracing the gospel means embracing that there is nothing about your worthiness that earns God's favor. God gave it to you, the unworthy. He gave it to you freely as a gift. The gospel is about God's rescue of the poor, not his rewarding of the rich. The gospel is that before God, we were all poor, blind, wretched because of our sin, children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience, enemies of God, outcasts, strangers to the covenants. But now in grace, God has brought us near. And now our hope is in his promise that he will not judge us according to our sins, but he will judge us according to the mercy given us in Christ. And a Christian who understands that should treat others in the same way. God set you free from your sin, the law of liberty. You were judged by the law of freedom, of liberty. Now you should receive others the same way. And then verse 13, James says something that at first seems kind of harsh to us. Verse 13, judgment, you see, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Okay, he's saying the law of liberty is that we're going to be judged by the law that sets us free, meaning we're going to be judged by, by, I guess, the righteousness and obedience of Christ. Therefore, we are set free because we're judged by this. I, I would have to work on this law of liberty concept. He's not really explaining. I see this is why sometimes I can't stand sermons because sermons are more interested in a sermon than actually working and struggling through the text. I got some questions right here and I still don't know exactly. I do know this. Partiality is, I don't know if this is why partiality is wrong. I do know this. As we can't, we should not be engaged in the sin of partiality. What we should do is remind ourselves first that 
We're all sinners and we're all guilty. So I'm not going to look to one person better than another person because we're all guilty. And if I have been, and I should also remember that I have been set free from condemnation because of the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to me freely by grace, then I should treat other people the same way. Okay. Maybe, but that's more in how to combat partiality. That's not what would make partiality wrong unless you're saying partiality, ah, I'm trying to follow him. His his points are not that, that. The second one was clear. The first one I don't quite understand, and the third one I don't quite understand. Right now, someone else or, or someone who gave us that first idea, uh, they said the second is to fulfill the law. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that one. I, th- we, I think everyone can agree on that one. The third, it is placing harsher judgment upon another, a lack of mercy. James 2, 12 and 13. So speak ye uh, and do as that as that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he, sh- he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. So I, I guess it's wrong because... We're judging others with a lack of mercy. Okay. Maybe, maybe if we state it that way, that's a little, his whole way, but I guess I can see what he's saying. Disdain for anyone or treating others with some kind of favor is a disconnect from the gospel because we should treat all people the same, merciful as we've been treated merciful because of Christ. Maybe you could go that way. Maybe, maybe that would work that way. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, he says, if you don't show mercy, you won't receive mercy. Now, hold on. Does James mean that we earn God's mercy by showing mercy? Well, no. I mean, that would contradict so many other clear teachings of the Bible. You can't earn God's mercy by showing mercy or anything else. God's mercy is a free gift you receive by faith. It's by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, even the work of showing mercy so that nobody can boast. Nobody's gonna be in heaven saying, I'm here because I showed so much mercy to other people. What James is saying is not that we earn God's mercy by showing mercy. Listen, he's actually saying the flip of that. Follow me, okay, lean in. James means that the evidence that we have experienced mercy is that we show it. If you really have received God's mercy, you can't help but show it to others. It is. Oh, that's that little semantics game. I cannot stand. You don't, you don't get mercy because you're merciful, but you prove you got mercy because you're merciful. So if you're not merciful, then you really didn't get mercy. So you're not saved. So you don't do it to get saved. But if you don't do it, then you were never saved. It's just a, it's a big circle. Ladies and gentlemen, over and over, any scripture that says you must do this, or you do this, or you must do this, those are law passages. Though we don't mess with them, that's what's required. Well, then how do we fulfill it? Christ fulfilled it for us because he showed mercy. He he gave mercy. He showed mercy to other people. He was merciful in Christ. His obedience of 
giving mercy and showing mercy is imputed to me. So I fulfill this in Christ. Should I be merciful? Yes. Am I called to be merciful? Yes. But I will never ultimately fulfill it because you can't say, whoa, 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 whoa. You only prove you're saved if you show mercy, which you're telling me that I must show mercy in order to be saved. But then you'll spend the rest of your life knowing, did I show enough mercy? Have I shown enough mercy? How much mercy do I have to show to prove that I'm saved? And how much of this do I have to do to prove that I'm saved? And how much do this do I have to prove that I'm saved? And then you'll spend all your time trying to figure out if you're doing enough. And then guess what you'll do? You'll say, well, I don't have to do it perfectly, but that's still enough to prove that I'm saved. How can your imperfection prove that you're saved? Because the scriptures that demand you do these things don't say try. They demand you do. And if you don't, they always then give, well, then basically you get no mercy. It doesn't say if you try, it says you must or you don't get it. Well, you're going to fail showing mercy over and over. You're, there's times you're not going to show mercy to your spouse. There's times you may not show mercy to your kids. There's times you may not show mercy to the person who cut you off in traffic. There's going to be time and time and time again, you're not going to show mercy over and over and over. So then you would be in a perpetual state of fear that you're not really saved. No, God demands you show mercy. You're going to fail. Christ did it for you find your salvation in Christ, then because of that mercy you've received, it should, in theory, motivate you to be merciful. But you're never going to do it anywhere close to perfect because God demands you show perfect mercy. God demands that you forgive others as Christ hath forgiven you. That's a perfect forgiveness. Have you ever forgiven anyone that perfectly? No, you haven't. You're never going to. But Christ has forgiven And in him, you do forgive others the correct way. Practically, you're trying to live out what is true positionally, and it's always going to be imperfect. And you cannot look to that imperfection as proof that you're saved. You have to look to the perfect to prove that you're saved. Why would you look to the imperfect to prove that you're saved? Why would I look to my imperfect attempts to do these things? Because that would only lead me to doubt my salvation. Why would I not look to the perfection of Christ, which would guarantee my salvation? Impossible, James says, to have any true awareness of the gospel and remain a judging, unforgiving, locked up person. And if you are a judging, unforgiving, prejudiced person, the only explanation is that you have not really received mercy or at least for real with any significant experience of it. See, immediately, if if you're a judgmental person, if you do these things, you're not saved. So yeah, you have to do these things in order to be saved. It's a workspace system that we just play games with. Well, no, no, no. You don't do it to get saved, but if you don't do it, you are never saved. So I have to do it in order to be saved? Well, yeah. Well, how much do I have to do to be saved? Well, I mean, you're not going to do it perfectly. So my imperfection will prove that I'm saved? Why would I look to my imperfection to prove that I'm saved since I'm supposedly saved by an imputed righteousness, which is perfect? So why would I not look to the perfect thing, right? Um... Someone says, isn't James writing to believers? Yes, he, he, he would be writing to believers. Uh, I think we could see that. Um, my brother, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. We think that he's writing to uh, believers. We think that he is. We think that he is. My thing is, is trying to figure out that that may offer some help. I always just look at it. Is it a law passage? If it's a law passage, it doesn't matter who it's written to. It's going to have the same impact. It's going to condemn us. What's our only hope? Christ. Turn to the gospel. Now, I take this law and realize that even though I've been forgiven, 
I must then seek to be merciful and not show partiality. I am to pursue that. I just don't look to my pursuit of that as assurance of one's salvation. And remember, James is always the book that is used by many that seems to contradict Paul. James focuses on works. Everyone tries to reconcile this difference. We talked about this today in our episode on law and gospel. Everyone tries to reconcile these contradictions. The only way to try to reconcile it to me is this is law. Law points me to the gospel. Others say, no, 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 no. The way you do this is your works prove your salvation. Well, I'm going to be in trouble. And I got no problem telling me works prove my salvation, but my works will condemn me. So I need better works. Oh, the works of Christ are imputed to my account. So in a sense, now they're my works. So go ahead and judge me according to works. And well, my works are perfect. My works are better than yours because my works are the works of Christ imputed to my account. That's how I would try to handle it. I think the best place that Jesus made this parable, made, made this point was in the parable. That he told about the man who was forgiven 10,000 talents, which is my favorite of his parables, which is why you hear it from me about every six months. Basically, you got a man in court with a debt of 10,000 talents that he owes to this other man, this loan shark. I've told you this before, but a talent was equivalent to about 20 years of labor for the average worker. That means in your whole lifetime, your whole lifetime, you might earn maybe two or three talents. This man owes 10,000, 5,000 lifetimes of work. 10,000 was the nicest number you would count to in Greek. So when you said 10,000, it was like saying a gazillion dollars. Point is, it's a debt he could never repay. Well, the day the debt's due, this man's now in court. In those days, you couldn't pay your debt. Then you went to prison. Not just you, but your kids. And if by the time you died, you hadn't paid your debt off, they stayed in, in prison, in debtor's prison, which usually meant enslavement to the family you owed the money to. This man now overwhelmed, not just at his prospects, but the prospects of his family. Does something that I'm sure was common, but was awkward all the same. He falls down on his knees in this courtroom and he says, please, sir, I don't have this money, but please don't put me and my children in, in slavery. Please give me one more week, he asked for, just one more week and I'll pay you back every penny, which is ridiculous. I mean, the man owes 5,000 lifetimes of work. He's not going to pay it off in a week. You can imagine at this point in the story, everybody's kind of shuffling their feet, looking around, because this is awkward. Because this guy that loans other people money doesn't get into the position he's in by being a softy, a pushover. But what we, today, we don't, what do we call them? We don't call them loan puppies, loan bunnies, loan sharks. If you don't pay your money, they bring a baseball bat to your doorstep and they you know, break your kneecap, that kind of person. But all of a sudden in this story, this man feels an emotion. Nobody's expecting it. It's called compassion. He gets a tear in his eye and a quiver in his voice. And he, I don't know, we don't know why. I didn't even say, it's just unexpected. And all of a sudden he looks at this man and says, no, 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 no. You don't have another week to pay me back. Because as of right now, this moment, your entire debt is forgiven. All of it, gone. Nobody can believe it. Certainly not the man who's been forgiven. And they're like, he's like, what just happened? And I do want to say this. If your debt, has been completely forgiven before God, completely forgiven. Jesus paid for it all. How dare someone come over to you and say, hey, 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 if you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you prove you were never saved. Well, those things you're pointing to me saying, if, I do, if I'm guilty of this, it proves I'm never saved. Haven't they all been paid for by Jesus? 
How can you take that which has been paid for and then say, if I'm guilty of this or if I don't do this or if I do this, then I'm a sinner and that proves I was, I'm not saved. It's all been paid for in Christ. It's weird that Christians will say, all your sins have been paid for. They've been thrown into the deepest ocean. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you don't do one, two, three, if you don't show mercy, if you don't do this, you prove you were never saved. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's proving that I'm not living up to God's holy law, which I'm never going to, but all of that's been paid for, right? Now, I'm not saying we should just do what we want, but if it's either paid for, it's not paid for. Well, we tell people it's paid for. Oh, but wait, you're doing wrong. This possibly proves you're not saved. Well, was it paid for or not? Well, it's only paid for if you prove that it's been paid for. By not doing it. Well, I thought it was paid for. No, 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 no. It's only paid for if you prove that it's been paid for by what you do. (laughs) It's paid for. Is it paid for? Yes or no? If you say it's paid for. That payment is yours by faith. If we would, now we can get into a whole discussion about how the, you know, we, I know we we can get into a whole discussion about all of that. But the point is, if it's paid for, then stop pointing to people's behavior to say that proves you're not saved. Because if you're pointing to my behavior, that's not living up according to God's standard. I will say it's been paid for. And not only that, that very standard you're giving me, Christ fulfilled for me by imputed righteousness. Now, not, that doesn't mean that you go live any way you want. Just means that, that your salvation is secure based off perfection of Christ and that all your wrong, all sin has been paid for. Past, present. Don't we believe future is forgiven as well? And he stands up and for the first time and who knows how long he feels as light as air. He walks out across the street. He's kind of dazed. When suddenly in Jesus' story, a man crosses the street toward him who owes him $2 for a Mountain Dew that he'd borrowed the week before. And this guy suddenly snaps back into reality. He's like, hey, where's my $2? Just been forgiven, you know, a gazillion dollars. He's now asking for two. And the guy says, man, I'm sorry. I don't have any cash. I mean, it's been a hard week. I'll get, I'll hit you next week. I promise. No, if you don't have my $2 right now, I'm taking you to court and you're going to debtor's prison. Now, at this point in the story, when Jesus told that, his hearers would have said, no way. Come on, man. I thought you were telling a true story. There's no way that somebody who just got forgiven a gazillion dollars would hold somebody else accountable for a dollar fifty. And Jesus is like, exactly. Exactly. In the same way, there is no way you could receive the kind of mercy that God gave you in forgiving your sins and then withhold mercy from others. There's no way that you could experience that kind of generosity and not be moved to give to those around you in need. But we do it all the time. We fall short of this all the time. The Christian church has done this over and over and over where we have not shown kindness or mercy or treated people with, and you're going to say, well, everyone who's ever done guilty has not saved. Now, you got to be very careful with this parable because many people say this parable teaches purgatory to everything else, losing your salvation. People go crazy with this. I think it reflects law. <laughs> you have to be perfect and you're not perfect. Well, if you're not perfect, you're, you're going to have to pay for your sins. Okay, where do I get this perfection from? Christ does it for you perfectly. 
That's the, that's the, at the end, this is law versus gospel, right? Let's see how he's going to, he's going to use this as evidence to prove your salvation. But then you're, I'm telling you, you fall short of this all the time. I do too. There's no way, no way to believe that God received you when you were an outcast and then looked down on or show prejudice towards somebody else. The fact that you are like that means that you've probably never experienced the gospel. You take that literal. Anytime you've not shown mercy, anytime you've looked down on someone else, anytime you've done this, then it possibly proves you were never saved. You're going to have to live your life thinking, I don't know if I'm saved. And just think, even if externally you show and act the right way, how many times in your mind and in your heart, you're looking at people the wrong way, you're judging them, you're showing partial. Come on, you know it. Let the truth of your self be confronted with the law of God and you will say, woe is me, I am undone. Christ, though, did all of this for us perfectly. See, that's what James is actually saying right here. That's what James is saying. Last week to the middle schoolers, I described it like being hit with a, I, I said, right, here's why, I'll just tell you the little story I told I was like, imagine that I was late getting up here to speak at camp. Where's JD? Nobody knows where JD is. Suddenly my car pulls up outside the worship center, screeches to a halt. I hop out. I run up on stage. I'm like, y'all, I'm so sorry. Man, I did not mean to be late. I was looking forward to this, but Veronica and I were driving up here. And on the way up here, our car had a flat tire right there on on I-64, whatever it is up there. Uh, Right there, right there in the middle of the road, we had a flat tire. I got out and started changing the tire and I was taking the lug nuts off and one of those lug nuts rolled across the road. Uh, so I went out to get it and I reached down to pick it up. And right as I reached down to pick it up, I heard this loud horn. I look up, y'all, there's a tractor trailer coming at me going 75 miles an hour. Just hit me square. Probably not me 300 yards. And I skidded to a halt and that tractor trailer slammed on his brakes and then just ran over me. I guess he didn't know what happened because he put it in reverse and ran over me again, backed over me. Y'all, that hurt. It took me a minute. I got up though, and I found that lug nut, and I put the tire back on the car, and I drove straight here, and that's why I'm late. And I asked all those middle schoolers, I'm like, what would you say if I said that? And they were like, we would say you were lying. Because <laughs> there's no way, there's just no way you could get hit by that kind of force and stay the same. If you really got hit by a tractor trailer going 75 miles an hour, you'd look different. You'd walk different, you'd talk different, smell different, everything about you'd be different at this point. Now, what's wrong with this illustration? You know where he's going to go with this. If you get hit with the mercy of God, then you will be different and you will always show mercy. But you forget something. You're talking about being hit physically and physically hurt or physically injured or your appearance physically changed by being hit by this massive thing. And now you're going to try to correlate that to being hit by God's mercy. But God's mercy hitting you does not remove your sinful nature. That's why we can receive it and we don't often give it. That's why we can be forgiven as Christ hath forgiven us and we're not so forgiving to others. That's why we have received God's love and then we don't love people. We get angry at people. We're jealous. We are hate, we're hateful. We say mean things. We're not, even if you think they're your enemy, you're supposed to love them. That's why we don't turn the other cheek. That's why we don't do all of these things because 
because the sinful nature remains in us. If you're going to make the argument that no, 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 no. Once you get hit with God's love and God's mercy, you'll never be the same. And so you'll be merciful and you won't show partiality. Well, then everyone listening to this sermon, if they're even remotely honest with themselves, would say, woe is me. There is no hope because I continue to sin. Why do I continue to sin? Because you still possess a sinful nature. You can be hit by God's love a hundred times. Boom, 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 boom. Yes, you hope each time it will make you more sensitive and more loving and more caring and more compassionate and less selfish and less focused on yourself and less hateful to other people. But the reality is that sinful nature is inside of you and it raises its ugly head every single day and night. What James is saying is those who genuinely encounter mercy, they become merciful. And so from one angle, you can say that only those who show mercy toward others should expect it from God. Because if you don't show mercy, there's no way you really could have experienced it. The little indicator light that you have received mercy is that you become merciful. Jesus repeated this theme often in the gospels. And it's why some of what he says confuses you. He taught us to pray, for example, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, we can expect God's forgiveness in similar measure to how we forgive others. All of those passages are law, 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 which should make you go, oh no, I'm in trouble. And then that drive, this, this is the total obliteration of the proper distinction between law and gospel. See, everyone wants to focus on this sermon because he says some mean things about his people showing up to church late. Maybe we should be more worried about the possible total obliteration between the proper distinction between law and gospel. But why would we focus on that when it's easier just to attack a pastor because he possibly rebuked his people and we don't like it, or we think he's not right to rebuke? The sermon has got a fundamentally philological problem. It's obliterating the proper distinction between law and gospel, and it's not reading passages that are law as law. And it's looking to law to prove our salvation. Law will never prove your salvation. Law will only condemn you. The only thing that proves your salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is a perfect example of the obliteration of law and gospel. Now, we could finish this, but we'll save it for till tomorrow morning. Well, we can come in with a dramatic conclusion. Now, I do apologize. Uh, this is one of those messages podcast episodes, where the beginning of this, I just felt like I could not get my footing. I felt like everything was just not going well. I don't know why, just sometimes it happens. So um, I do apologize for the beginning of this. It was, was rough. There was, about, there was about a, I don't know at what time period in it, I almost literally stopped the broadcast and said, hey guys, this is going horribly wrong. I apologize. I'm going to stop this, delete it, and start over. I probably should have, but that's, that's so, uh, that's, you know what? That's just so, I don't know. It's just not, it's not, I don't know how many people were listening. That would just be not the right way to do it. So I pressed through. Hopefully we gained something from this. I still don't know if I have three clear reasons from James 2 why partiality is wrong or the sin of partiality is wrong. I think we've got one good one. I think we've got, I think we possibly have two. The first one is the sin of partiality is wrong because all partiality is motivated by evil motives. It's motivated by our wrong motives. 
Okay. I think maybe they're there it, or it demonstrates it's driven by, yeah, there's a lot of different ways we could go that, but evil motives is clearly involved, right? Secondly is because, well, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, And I still don't know the third one really well. I don't know if I have it completely uh, figured out, but you can work on that as well. But the main thing to see in all of this is this has descended into basically do the right thing. If you show partiality, if you don't show mercy, then you are probably not saved. That is law, 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 law. And that will only condemn you and not give anyone any peace. You should preach that law with its full force. If you don't do this, You are not saved. The law condemns you. And you should say, there is no hope. And no matter how hard I try, I'm going to end up following my own devices. And I'm going to continue being motivated by the the, uh, evil imaginations of my heart. I'm quoting Jeremiah 18, 12, because we preached on this Sunday night. And what's the hope? Jesus Christ. He was merciful. He showed no partiality. He was godly. He was holy. He was righteous. He fulfills all of these commands. And in him, this, that obedience is yours. But if you obliterate it, then it all turns into do this, do this, do this. And if you don't, you're possibly not saved. Do this and do this and do this. You're possibly not saved. Well, now you're looking to law to prove your salvation. Law can't prove your salvation. It was only designed to condemn you. So in a roundabout way, This ended up connecting to our long gospel series. In a roundabout way, it connected to our Jeremiah 18 series. In a roundabout way, this entire sermon review, even though the viral part is him rebuking his church, really, that shouldn't have been the viral part. What should have went viral is J.D. Greer obliterates the proper distinction between law and gospel. But you know why that wouldn't go viral? Because no one cares about the proper distinction of law and gospel. And people obliterate that distinction and sermon after sermon after sermon in the American church every single week. Because it's it's this theological principle that for some reason disappeared, as we learned today, probably around the 6th century. Or by the time you get to the Council of Orange, which was in the 500 something, I don't have the date in front of me. Basically, from the 6th century on, the church lost the proper distinction between law and gospel. And then Luther, tried, Melanchthon, Luther, and some tried to bring it back. But it only really had an influence mainly in the Lutheran world, some reform world, but even there it always gets obliterated and it becomes this law-based concept. And the American church is addicted to a law-based system. And while we claim to be gospel-preaching churches, our gospel is nothing more than law masquerading as gospel and it condemns. And if anyone's remotely honest with themselves this sermon, you should be saying, well, then I'm up the creek. I don't do these things. I don't love the way I'm supposed to love. I don't show mercy the way I'm, I am judgmental. I'm condemning. I show partiality in my mind in some way, shape or form. Woe is me. And you know what? You should feel the weight of that conviction. It should break you. It should destroy you. And you should say, my only hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I do agree that that truth should go Thank you, Lord, for saving me and forgiving me no matter how many times I fail in this area. But Lord, I'm going to strive each day to show the love and the mercy that I have received. And and every time you fail, you go back to Christ for that forgiveness. 
All right, you can email me. I do, again, apologize for the beginning. of. I'm going to go back and listen to the beginning of this. I'm scared to go back and listen to it. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Just thing. I could not get my footing, right? And it's like, what is happening? But you're live, so there's no. So I apologize for that. But go ahead and email me if you would like newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks to the one email I kind of re- re- referenced a little bit. Uh, the one person who sent me their three, their three, their three reasons that partiality is wrong in James two. I, I, they they did better than I think I don't think anybody else came close to that so they did pretty good I'm still I'm still struggling with exactly what the right answer is there so I think we maybe maybe have worked with what they said and what I said maybe we've come up with two I still don't know about the third one and thanks to the person who sent me the screenshot from the uh Strong's concordance where we at least we get the what JD Greer said about respecter of persons in James 2 and meaning something to do with the face. Okay, well, maybe we get that, but still a lot of what he said about the Greek word is completely just, we we don't know where it came from. It We cannot find any confirmation of anything he said in regards to that. So, all right, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. We'll be back tomorrow morning. I'm hoping before 10 a.m., that's my hope, before 10 a.m. Central Time, and we'll take this to its dramatic conclusion where we'll get to hear the viral part where he rebukes his church for being late and leaving early. What has that got to do with James chapter two? I am very interested to find out. And now you will have no choice but to listen to part three. Good night. God bless.